time of pastoral prayer, this is a great opportunity for us to pray together as a church, for us to all gather together in one name and pray together and thank God for what he has done this year and thank God for what he is continuing to do. So let's all pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that Christ left heaven while we were still sinners and came to rescue us from the hand of our enemy. You have made known to us the path of life, a narrow path, a path that may be walked in faith alone, in Christ alone. You, Father, are our Lord. You are our chosen portion. You give us counsel, and you promise not to abandon us. Because of this, our heart is glad, our whole being rejoices, and we dwell in safety. We thank you, Father, for our sister, Leah Papner. We thank you that she is progressing in her recovery. We thank you for her loving and supportive family who has remained by her side. We pray specifically for her and her balance and equilibrium issues, and we ask that her mind and her body would completely recover. We thank you also for Maggie Bird and her successful surgery. Thank you for, for protecting Maggie and calming the hearts of her parents. And I thank you, Father, for the incredible generosity of your sons and daughters here at Grace Covenant. We thank you for Pastor Glenn's vision to pay off our building early, and thank you for everyone's response to get our building paid off. Father, you have financially positioned Grace Covenant to do incredible kingdom work in 2024, and I humbly pray that great work would be done inside of us and great work would be done through us. And lastly, we pray for our brother Glenn. We thank you for the time that he has spent preparing this message. I pray that you grant him continued wisdom and clarity as he handles your word. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in this room that you would give us soft hearts that we may receive the teaching that you have for us through your word and through Pastor Glenn. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you guys have your Bible, please turn to Psalm chapter 16. That's the sermon text for this morning. Psalm chapter 16, hear the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In, the, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Thank you, brother. I realized the other day not everybody knows who I am. My name's Glenn Durham. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, we kind of have two kinds of elders. We have some that are staff. Uh, pastor Greg McDaniels, our lead pastor, uh, 
Travis is our family and youth and children's pastor, and uh, Ian is our evangelism and discipleship pastor. Staff pastors uh, are paid in some way. Ian is part-time, but they're paid by the church. And then there are three of us that are elders that are unpaid, uh, just volunteers. Uh, That's Charlie and John McNamee and me. Um, I have a little different situation in that I pastored for 25 years uh, before I felt like it was time to leave and go back into engineering. So I work at a software development company, but I do have a full-time job. Uh, So the stuff I do here is just volunteer, uh, but I'm greatly honored that Greg uh, has taken the Advent season the last few years and let uh, the elders preach through that and uh, just enjoy the time with his family and be be blessed by the word. So uh, Psalm 16, I, it, I just love Psalm 16. I love how it proclaims joy, even while at the same time acknowledging that this present life, for the psalmist and for us, this present life is not, uh, as we say it in our household, all rainbows and unicorns. Uh, and, and the last verse, I think is my favorite in all the psalms, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, the title of today's sermon is The Once and Future Joy. Uh, that's a, a take off on uh, the book by T.H. White, The Once and Future King. My mother, who's here today, uh, taught English for 36 years. And uh, so the story of King Arthur, uh, she was an English literature teacher. The story of King Arthur is very important to her, very important uh, in in our house, and he wrote the book, The Once and Future King. Arthur was uh, the king of England, supposedly, according to this legend, in the 1300s or so, and so he was once the king, and then he was going to come back and be the future king again. So today's sermon, Psalm 16, is about the once and future joy, which is the theology of Psalm 16. It's the theology of the Bible. Pastors often call this the already and not yet of the Bible. The Bible tells us about things that are already true, but oftentimes it tells them about, uh, tells them to us in a way where it's saying it's not yet completely true. It's an already and not yet. Is there already a joy to those who know Jesus? Well, yeah, absolutely. Do we have unending and un uh, mitigated and, and complete overflowing joy like Psalm 1611 says in your presence the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore well no it's not quite like that right now is it so it's already and not yet that's the way the Bible presents things like this it's also the story of Christmas and then it's about the coming of, of baby Jesus the appearance of the, of the promised Messiah And what does the angel say? If you've watched Charlie Brown, you know, right? Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. There's a now joy, an already joy, a a current, a once joy in the once and future joy kind of situation because Jesus is born. We're going to conclude our service today by singing that uh, famous carol, Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord, anybody know what the verb is? Yeah. Is come. Right? It's just the, 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 uh, who wrote that? Shoot. 
Who wrote Joy to the World? Was it Handel? No, Handel's the music. Somebody. The old guy. Exactly. You mean me? Whoever wrote Joy to the World intentionally chose the verb. When, you, when, you, when I was first learning, I thought, okay, well, that's a typo on the, in the, I, le- I learned songs in a, what's called a hymnal, which is a printed version of, of a songbook. Uh, but, I, you know, it looked like a misprint. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, was what I expected. But the, the psalmist, the, whoever wrote it, uh, said, no, he is come. There's a joy now. There's a current joy. There's a present joy because Jesus is born. And for many years of my Christian life, I thought that, that the joy that these angels announced when they said, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, I thought it was only related to the, to the first birth, to the coming of baby Jesus. But over time, especially as I studied church history, I found out that the church historically has not focused on the, the birth part at Advent. The Advent season was when the church said to, to all of the people, to Christians, hey, there's a second coming. There's a, a future joy. Yes, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, and it's coming again in the future. Um, so there is an already joy, but in this life, we still have sorrow and suffering, don't we? The final fullness of joy awaits the future king who will wipe away every one of your tears. Death shall be no more. There will be no more sorrow. This is Revelation. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Because when Jesus comes back, the former things are done away with. I went to get a haircut last week, and uh, as I chatted with the lady cutting my hair, she asked what I was doing out in the middle of the day. I said, well, I have a job, but I'm taking my lunch break to to get a haircut. And um, I wasn't going to tell you this, but just for completeness sake, I said, so I said, you know, it's somehow it's been months since I got a haircut, and it's not not looking great, and I felt like I really need to get it cut, and then I paused for a second. She finished the sentence. She said, yeah, so you don't look like a homeless man. Just <laughs> <laughs> not what I was thinking, actually, as it turns out. <laughs> I'd cut that out of the sermon, but as an illustration, but it seemed appropriate. Anyway, after I recovered from that, I, I, I said, well, uh, so what are you doing? Are you ready for Christmas, is what I ended up saying. And uh, she said, well, no, I hate Christmas. Um, I hate Christmas. And uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Why is that? Well, all of the joy I've ever had in life is connected to my grandmother, and she died at Christmas three years ago. There's a, a lot of things to say about that, but just for the moment, I just thought about, of course, I'm preparing this sermon and thinking about joy and the angels promising joy, and yet it's not quite joy, and it's not yet. And, and it was just a very poignant illustration or ap, a, a, a example of, you know, we still suffer in this life. It, it's not all joy yet. There is an already, but there's a not yet. Peter understands this. Listen to what he says. After you have suffered for a little while, that's 
right now, after you suffer a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. He points you to the future. He says he himself will one day restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Not soon, but you will eventually experience the promise of the fullness of joy in his presence and pleasure forevermore. So my theme today, this is a, what's called a topical sermon. I know some of you may ha- have gotten the impression the only way to treat a bi- treat, uh, preach a biblical sermon is to go straight verse by verse. That's a great way to do it, but there's also, you can preach biblical sermons by taking a topic, in this case for Advent, we're looking at five major themes in the Bible, and, and mine assigned is joy. Take a topic and look at various places in the Bible where it talks about, so you, you understand joy from a, uh, the whole of the Bible. So, uh, by God's grace, it's a biblical sermon. And uh, the theme I began to think about is, okay, how do we experience this joy, which is promised by the angels? Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people, even in the midst of this fallen world. And there are three things that we need to do, I think. First, we have to embrace a biblical definition of joy. You have to have a biblical definition. If you if you just make up your own definition and say, well, this is what makes me happy, graters, ice cream, and uh, (laughs) graters, and what are those uh, Buckeyes? Uh, You know, (laughs) okay, (laughs) well, there you go. Uh, But that's not a biblical definition of joy. So the angels did not promise you graters and Buckeyes. Um, But then you're going to find out, uh, I want to show you that we're going to have to deny ourselves despair. That's going to be hard for some of you. It's hard for some of us right, because we enjoy despair. I mean, there's a whole website debated, debate, uh, devoted to despair.com where you can get those posters, you know, that, that show those motivational posters converted into despair posters. Those are pretty funny. Um, but that's not going to help you biblically. And then uh, we, have to be, we have to learn to be cautious of the counterfeit because there is a counterfeit of joy that many of us have set our hearts on. And until we get rid of that, well, you're not going to have the biblical joy. So that's it. That's the outline. Fairly simple. Let's look quickly uh, then at a biblical definition of joy. The word joy occurs more than joy and its related words. Enjoy, uh, rejoice, all of the joy words occur more than 400 times in the Bible. And then you probably realize there are other words that actually don't include joy, uh, but there's delight and, and happiness uh, and so the, the word joy and, and rejoicing, all of these happy things are just replete throughout the scriptures. This is why C.S. Lewis said, it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can be. It's a duty to be happy. In other words, it's a command in the Bible. It's not an option. You don't get to decide that, you don't. my life is bad, so I don't want to be happy. Well... That's called sin. So let's look at the biblical definition of joy. Because if your religion lacks any place for a jump up and down joy, then, well, your faith is not a biblical Christianity. And I say that because the word joy is just replete in the scriptures. It's all the way through it. We start our launching point for today is Psalm 1611. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But here's another example. Listen to what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you so that 
This is a shocking sentence. He's talking to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy, because I'm full of joy, my joy will be in you. And then an amazing sentence. And your joy will be full. My joy will be in you and your joy will be full. It's like, it's like you're the first person out there at the coffee urn in the morning and it's five gallons of coffee because the coffee team just made it and set it up there and you go there with your little paper cup and if you flip that little flip up and just leave it there, Charlie will be very unhappy. Uh, <laughs> but oh my goodness, it will overflow. Jesus is an urn full, five gallons and more of joy. And he says, I'm telling you things because I'm putting my joy inside of you. And when my joy is inside of you, your joy will just, I have so much, it will overflow. And you're probably not surprised then to find out that Paul often talks about joy, tells the Thessalonians rejoice always. The Philippians rejoice in the Lord. The Corinthians finally brothers rejoice. He prays for the church of Rome. May the God of all hope fill you with joy in believing. There's a connection between joy and faith. What you believe matters and it affects your joy. But I tell you this, Paul never picked up a pen that he did not write about joy in his letters. He wrote about a lot of hard suffering, too. But he always talked about joy. And the Bible insists that your God is joyful and that you are to be also. But that's not the whole story, right? It's not the whole story because the same Bible which insists on joy is also painfully realistic about suffering and sadness. Jesus says it this way. When a woman gets to the point when she's about to give birth. I've never given birth, thankfully. But I remember a little bit of it, even though it's been a long time. 28 years yesterday, Rebecca was born. Uh, it's been a long time, but that's a long time, exactly. <laughs> Not that long, Byron. <laughs> Don't be pushing it now. <laughs> what does Jesus say when she comes to the point and she's ready to give birth? She has sorrow because she's the time has come right it's a painful experience and then what does jesus say but when the child is born she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world and then jesus applies it to us he says so now you have sorrow right now but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take that joy from you. Now, the context that Jesus is telling that story is he's there with his disciples. He, is, he knows what's coming, I think, the next day. It's the crucifixion. And he knows, just like poor Ian, that the Bengals are going to lose. <laughs> that Joe Montana is going to... Just crush that little six-year-old, was six years old or nine? Nine-year-old heart. And he's going to be so broken of that the rest of his life he's going to preach sermons about the Bengals losing. <laughs> so what Jesus says to his disciples is, it's coming. 
and you will be crushed. You will be so sad because you have thought all this time of a Messiah and you have not read the Bible. You have not listened to what I said. You made up your own idea of a Messiah who was going to crush the Romans, bring in the new political power, make all of the Jews have uh, little, little thrones to sit on, and we finally get to give those Gentiles their comeuppance. It's going to be like it's going to be like Joe Theismann, uh, um, was it Joe Theismann? Jo- Joe Montana was on our team. That's what the Jews thought. And Jesus says, "I am going to do what I promised. I'm going to die." And so Jesus said, "It's coming." Oh gosh, you're going to be sad. Hang on though. In three days. I will see you again. And it will come on you and you'll say, oh, why didn't I read the Bible? Look at this. He did everything he said. He crushed sin. He destroyed Satan. He raised from the dead. And then Jesus says, when you understand that, your joy will be full. And no one will ever take that joy from you. Let me extend that illustration. Maybe hopefully... Uh, when, when uh, I think it was John, it could have been Travis, somebody at the elder meeting said, well, you're preaching on Christmas Eve, and I guess it was Travis. We, we don't have anybody volunteering to have uh, Sunday school, so all the kids are going to be in there. And uh, so you got a challenge to try to come up with illustrations that make them enjoy and feel part of it. So I thought of this one. On your birthday or Christmas, children often receive gifts, and on Christmas Eve... 2007, which is, what, Byron? A long time ago. (laughs) Can't even count back that far. That's 16 years ago. Daniel and Rebecca each got a couple of these. So you you open up your birthday or Christmas present, and this is what you get. So, you know, some presents you get are shiny, right? And, and, And they're what you want, right? Ian has for years been nurturing this want to see the Bengals win. And and when that happens, his joy will overflow. Not a biblical joy, but he'll still be happy, won't he? So you're you're a kid, you're opening up birthday presents or Christmas presents, and you, you have things in your mind that you want, and when it's what you want, what do kids do? They squeal, just like Ian. They squeal. Oh, we won. Well, when you're, when you're uh, 2007, how old were you? Uh, 12. When you're 12 years old and you open a Christmas present and this is what's in it. Right. Uh, okay, next. <laughs> this is a U.S. savings bond. Which is, I mean, it's a great present. But it does not have the emotional appeal of a brand new, uh, you know, iPhone or whatever it is. Uh, you give your kids. But it's still a good present. And you only need to wait another 15 years and you can redeem it. (laughs) It's hard to believe that it's still, after all those years, not redeemable. (laughs) Mr. Biden needs that money a lot more than you do. Okay, so how how do you teach your kids to rejoice when the gift is not what they wanted. Well, 
in that moment, the only response is to say, and what we try to teach our kids, the, the important thing is not just the gift, but it's that you have someone who loves you enough to give you a gift. So, grandmother, some of you tomorrow, when you open, I forgot my phone. Some of you tomorrow, when you open your gifts, remember that time? So I got a pop-up this morning, an article from the Wall Street Journal. The title of it is, Why You Are Probably Getting Socks for Christmas. <laughs> like it or not, it is the season of socks. It is the top-rated, top-gifted apparel item this holiday season. And uh, he goes on to say, wow, it's just such a disappointing. John Crossan remembers the disappointment and delusionment he felt as a child when given a pair of socks. <laughs> it's as if someone was trying to prank me. I thought socks were the epitome of uselessness, said the 30-year-old New York resident, so boring, so dull. Okay, so... The only thing, you know, some of you are going to get socks for Christmas. But the point is not whether grandmother gave you socks, it's that you have a grandmother who loves you enough to buy you a gift. Well, I mean, that's a silly illustration, but yet it points to a reality, which is this. How do you have joy in the midst of suffering? Because you know a father who loves you enough to promise you every good gift. So why is it we do not experience this joy? Well kind of alluded to it already, but it seems to me one reason many Christians do not experience joy is we are waiting for certain feelings to strike us. So what I've found is that many people think, well, I don't feel the joy, so therefore there is no hope for joy. And, and, and I need to tell you that we as a, and this has always been true, but it, it, it feels like it's more true of our time than many others, which is we're in danger of becoming addicted to our feelings. It, it, we, we are a people, by and large, that seem to me to say, I have this feeling, and therefore that thing is true. That's reality. Reality is defined by what I feel. And the Bible says no. Oh my goodness, it says no. You live in a fallen world. You're a fallen person. There are fallen people all around you. Your feelings will sometimes be completely at odds with reality. Biblical joy does not depend on the feelings of happiness coming inside you because you got what you wanted. That's just not how it works. Biblical joy does not de depend on the feelings of happiness welling up inside of you because you finally got what you want. That's not biblical joy. Because if that were true, then you would not be able to have joy in the midst of affliction. Affliction, what does Jesus say? Blessed are you when people curse you and ridicule you and mock you and mistreat you in every way. And then he says, rejoice and be glad. It's a strange sentence. Blessed are you when you're mistreated. Rejoice and be glad. What, what is Jesus getting at there? Is he telling us to rejoice because we're reviled? Rejoice because we're persecuted? No, that's not what he says. He says, you're blessed when these things happen to you, so rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. He's pointing you to that future that is coming, and he's saying there's a different calculus. The, the suffering and the joy on, are on different sides of the equation. 
God allows difficulty into your life so that when you have joy during the midst of suffering, you demonstrate that your faith in a reward is so great that the sufferings are inconsequential. When a mother comes to the time where she's ready to give birth, she is full of sorrow because she knows what's coming. But then there's a baby born. Doesn't make the sorrow go away, but the joy overwhelms it. Paul says the same thing. I consider the sufferings of this present time. Lisa, Paul's completely honest. You're going to suffer right now. It's, it's a tough world. I consider, though, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which will be revealed. He's taking the, the Jesus illustration of the, of the lady giving birth and applying it to us. There's coming a day when the joy is so great, you won't even be able to think about the sorrow anymore. That's why James tells you to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Imagine you're shipwrecked in the ocean. Imagine you're shipwrecked in the ocean, and the only thing preventing you from drowning is a life preserver which buoys you slightly out of the water. Now, being in the ocean with a life preserver is better than being in the ocean without a life preserver, right? I mean, even I can figure that out. But it's not quite being on dry land, is it? Or if, it's not like being in the ocean liner, the, you know, the, the cruise ship. It's better to be in the cruise ship than it is in the ocean with a life preserver, but it's better to have a life preserver than not have one. Well, we live, in the gar- we live outside the Garden of Eden. We live in a fallen world, and the evil and suffering that happens to us and around us can make us feel like we're shipwrecked and we're holding on to that life preserver for dear life. So, yeah, there is an already joy. I've got a life preserver, but I'm not yet back on the cruise ship. So where's the, I need that rescuing part. And, and so even though there's an already joy, though, when the storms come, you're out in the ocean, you have the life preserver, but the storms are still brewing, aren't they? And when, they, when the waves come, they crash over you. And, and, and you feel like you're, you're going to drown, and the water gets in your mouth and lungs, and, and you, you, you are trying to cling to the hope, but Christians are not exempt from the storms in life, are we? Our, we still have relatives who die. We still get the news of cancer or the pink slip. And, and these things that come at us raise the ocean waves higher than our heads, and we're looking up, and they're crashing down on us. And in the midst of those storms, here's what I want to challenge you with. Some of you are tempted to throw away the life preserver because you say, that is not what I had in mind <laughs> for the Christian life. <laughs> that is not what I had for joy. I don't want to hold on to a life preserver of joy in the midst of suffering because that's not what I expected. I d- yeah, I hear Jesus saying rejoice and be glad when people persecute you for great is your reward in heaven, but what I want is I don't want people persecuting me. Right? I want to be, I want to, I want to have happiness. I, I, this is why I spend so much of my life trying so hard to hide myself from the difficulties and harshness of life. Sure, there's a re- promise of reward in heaven, but here's what I want I want calm seas now. That's what I want. Let's talk about that. So, I need to tell you a greater truth, though. Those who cling to joy 
those who cling to joy in the midst of the difficulties find that even these big waves cannot steal from them the buoyancy which a Christian experiences because she knows she is safe. Safe. Cannot overwhelm what God is doing. No, you're not yet safely on dry land. But the one who threw you the life preserver is holding the rope and standing there in heaven and pulling you to a place where there is fullness of joy because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we began by saying I need, we need a biblical definition of joy. Here's my uh, definition. The supernatural work of God's spirit which sustains and gives hope even in the seas of suffering we experience in this world. That's a biblical definition of joy, I believe. It is the supernatural work of God's Spirit which sustains and gives hope even in the midst of suffering we experience in this world. So, remember my premise starting out was how do we experience the joy in this life that the angel promised when the angel came at the birth of Jesus and said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all the people and I'm not feeling the joy how do I start to get to joy first thing I do is I have to have a biblical definition of joy and there I've given to you here's the second thing that you have to do you have to deny yourself despair you must deny yourself despair now I found that many people think the opposite of joy is sadness that's where many people are probably some of you if I were to say what's the opposite of joy you'd say well sadness right joy and sadness but that's not accurate. That's not exactly what the Bible teaches. Because in the Bible, joy can coexist with sadness. The opposite of biblical joy is despair. It's to, to not have confidence in God. Think about how Paul tells you. He says, you're going to have some loved ones who die. And when that happens, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Notice what he says. Christians, when your loved ones die, you need to grieve. There are things that happen in this life for which you must grieve. But there is a way to grieve where we still have hope because we know how this story ends. But the rest of mankind grieves without hope. They have to give in to despair. Christian grief is buoyed by an in, in that ocean of sadness by joy because a christian knows the god who keeps her life safe forever what does psalm 42 say teaches you how to preach this to yourself why are you so downcast O my soul why disquieted within me put your hope in god put your hope in god despair is an alluring temptation Despair is an alluring temptation. It allows you to feel sorry for yourself. It allows you to blame others. It allows me to complain that I have not been treated fairly. Despair is a powerful temptation. But we must resist it. 
because despair is the work of the flesh which refuses to hope in God. Despair is the work of the flesh which refuses to hope in God. Deny yourself those sinful thoughts and emotions. You have to have a biblical definition of joy. You cannot just make up your own definition and say, well, here's my definition of joy. It's when everything goes great all the time for me. Okay, well, that's nice. <laughs> that's not a biblical definition. So you have a biblical then second to get that joy which the angel talked about, even in the midst of the difficulties of life, you must deny yourself despair. Then here's the third thing that must happen. You must be cautious of the counterfeit. You must be cautious of the counterfeit. So, if biblical joy buoys up the believer with hope and happiness, even in the midst of, of a sea of suffering, the counterfeit of biblical joy is the feelings of happiness you get when the sea is calm. It's the feelings of happiness you get when the sea is calm. Now, there's nothing wrong with a calm sea, but it is easy to mistake the light in a life of comfort with the joy of a buoyant life preserver. It's easy to mistake the, the happiness or delight that comes from a life of comfort with the joy that is a buoyant life preserver holding you out of the sea of suffering. Let me say it this way, give you an example. When your spouse serves you unselfishly, well, then you're happy. When your children obey a thought from you even before it's on your tongue. Mm. Some of you are just like, oh, this is, that's a better word picture than being on the beach in Hawaii. You want me to say it again for you mothers? Your children obey, I worked on that sentence. Your children obey your thoughts even before a word is on your tongue. The discount applies automatically and is bigger than you expected when you're buying something on the website. When you get both a raise and an attaboy from your boss. Well, dude, of course you're happy then. Come on. How could you not be? Everything's coming up rainbows and unicorns. Right? It's a life of ease. But that's a counterfeit of biblical joy. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? How many of us want to see the Bengals win the Super Bowl for Ian? Okay. Right? We want, Ian, we want poor Ian to have some joy in his life. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is the hope, it's the confidence, it's the belief in God that sustains you in the midst of suffering. So here is where it goes. How do you respond when your spouse is demanding? When, when your spouse lacks understanding and blames you for the mar marriage problems? How do you respond when your kids listen very, very carefully to every word that comes out of your mouth so that they can do exactly the opposite? Hmm? What about when you're overcharged for your car repairs? What about when you're demoted or maybe fired? What if your family is mean and the only thing you get for Christmas is woolen underwear? See, what happens to you during the storms of life? Now, there are people in life that are able 
through whatever reasons, to protect themselves from ever having storms, or seem to anyway. Right? That's one of the reasons people like money so much. It's because if I have enough money, I can tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I'll never go hungry. And what does Jesus say? Huh, you foolish man, your soul will be demanded from you tonight. Right? There is a, there's a counterfeit. You can work hard and dedicate your life to protecting yourself from sorrow. Or, or, or protecting yourself and your kids, or your grandkids. Right? There's a lot of people who do that. And then one day, the sorrow comes anyway. Biblical hope grabs onto that life preserver of joy in the seas of suffering and places her confidence in God. So how do we do this? Let me give you five steps. This is just a rough outline. This is not going to actually get you the answer, but it'll give you a little bit of a structure for how you do this. If you are one who says, I need to hold on tighter to the life preserver of joy, I need that, that confidence in God, here are five things you can do. First, read and memorize the promises of joy. I've already told you there are more than 400 times that it, the word joy and its related cognates appears, as well as other words. Faith comes by hearing Read about, well, what did Jesus said? My joy will be in you. Your God is a joyful God. So read about the God of joy and read about the promises he makes for you to have joy. And then the ones that especially appeal to you, the ones that have the word picture, maybe it's the one about the woman giving birth. Maybe it's about, for me, it's Psalm 1611. In your presence, that's one I've memorized. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That sustains me. That's a word picture I can see. I can picture Isaiah there, God up on his throne, and he is happy. There's fullness of joy in his presence. That means a lot to me. Memorize the ones that preach to your soul. Second, admit that you cannot have joy apart from Jesus and the work of his spirit. Remember our biblical definition of joy, it started out with it's a supernatural work. I get that primarily from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, second one. Right, so it's from the Spirit. It, it, it's a, somehow it's a supernatural work. So that leads me to the second point. Admit you cannot get it apart from Jesus, apart from the work of the Spirit. So that means confess the sin of settling for the counterfeit of joy and, and confess the sin of attempting to produce joy in your own strength. Admit that true joy is a gift of God's grace. And then third, so get your biblical definition of joy, find the scriptures on it, memorize those that preach to your heart. So read and memorize. Admit that you cannot have it apart from God. Here's the third thing to do. Pray to the God of joy. In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. If his presence is the fullness of joy, well then passionately pursue his presence. And the main way to do that is to Pray. So when you're tempted to despair, pray. When you're overwhelmed by the storms of life, pray. Here's an amazing sentence from, uh, sentence from Jesus in John 16. Ask, and you will, does anybody know what the next word is? Receive. But that's not where it stops. I mean, that's pretty good right there. Ask, and you will receive. So if I don't have joy, I need to ask for it. But listen to what he says. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is trying to make you happy. 
He's trying to give you this biblical joy to sustain you in the midst of difficulties. The angels predicted it, and Jesus says, I want my joy to be inside of you and your joy to be full. Pray to the God of joy. So read and memorize scriptures. Admit that you cannot do it apart from Jesus. Pray uh, for joy, and then act in faith. Act in faith. You know, it may sound crazy, but you need to hear this. If you haven't been listening, if you fell asleep, now's the time. Wake up. You cannot avoid suffering and experience biblical joy in this life. Cannot avoid suffering and experience biblical joy. Biblical joy comes when God lifts you up in the midst of suffering. That's what Peter says. Do not think it's strange when a fiery trial comes in and tries your life as though some strange thing is happening. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Right? So act in faith, take up the cross of joy, and then finally thank God for the joy given and the joy withheld. I think you probably already know this, but not every person is given the personality and, and, and the nature that has the same amount of joy. Some people are like Greg, his life preserver of joy just makes him walk on water. <laughs> and the rest of us just, I mean, I, I look at him sometimes and think, I just, I take a tenth of his joy and it would just overwhelm me. Because he's just, a, whatever that word is, for bubbling over with joy. So he's a joy person and many of others of us are not quite that way. So that's okay. But are we thankful for the joy God gives us. And if he doesn't give us as much joy as Greg, that's okay too. Thank you, God, for the joy you've given me. And thank you, God, for the joy you give Greg, which is always an encouragement. When I see him, it's always, I'm not a hugger, as you may have noticed. I'm Presbyterian by theology as well as by personality. <laughs> Do we have time for an extra illustration? Rebecca says yes. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a totally unanimous co vote from the congregation. <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll stop there. Um, for those of you who wish you had uh, said yes to the final illustration, we'll, we'll, you can have it later in a secondary program. <laughs> One of the best ways we share joy and we bless other people is by having them in for a meal. And... When Jesus was preparing for the cross that last night, he brought his disciples together to celebrate the Passover with them. And he said, I have desired to have this meal with you. And here the Passover is when God says to the Jewish people, you have suffered a lot, but I'm taking you out of Egypt and I am rescuing you. So it's a moment of, of great joy. But at the same time, when they left Egypt, where did they go? They went to the wilderness. <laughs> so it was not complete and eternal joy. It was an already and not yet. And then, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he brings his disciples back together to eat a meal with them, to say to them, here is what I'm doing. And I'm doing this 
to seal for you in eternity the fullness of joy and at my right hand forevermore. And he wants you, his church, today to remember, to relive, to receive that same promise. He wants you to say, I'm suffering in this life. How do I hold on to joy? How do I have joy in the midst of the storms? Jesus says, because I have been broken for you. I'm the one holding the rope on that life preserver. And I will take you to heaven. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. 